What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength of Physique with your hosts Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are bettering themselves with fitness. All right, guys, welcome back on the Sh- All The Smoke on Strength and Physique podcast. We got the one and only, right? Hey, I can't take your joke now because I used to say, hey, we only got three listeners, but... I think we have four now. (laughs) We got four now with Quinn on. So Dr. Quinn Hennick, I appreciate you taking the time to be on our podcast. And for those four listeners now that don't know who you are, uh, could you go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, one day you'll be able to grow your listener base to the the size that our podcast is, which is six. We're we're holding steady at six. We've been there for quite a while, Um, but I'm excited for the conversation. I am a a physical therapist in Southern California and my office is inside of a weightlifting gym and weightlifting in terms of the sport, uh, snatch and clean and jerk and, and, and other types of barbell sports and uh, athletes who use that training to augment their sports. So my office is inside of a facility like that, which is awesome. And it's the environment that I definitely wanted to be in. And, and, and so I'm blessed to be there and it's a lot of fun. And uh, before that, I, I went to school for strength and conditioning. That was my original education and, and foundation. And I, and I worked as a strength and conditioning coach for a couple of years until I just kind of wanted to expand my horizons a bit and go back to PT school. And um, I've been a a PT for eight years, something like that. And um, so, yeah, you know, I just, on the daily, just try to blend the worlds of strength conditioning and, and physical therapy. And I, I played football in undergrad at a small D1 AA school. And uh, I began my competitive weightlifting career in 2010. So the last decade has kind of been, you know, the struggles of being a mediocre athlete and mixing in training and rehab and, and all that stuff is, is kind of what's shaped my worldview. So it's, it's been fun. And, and uh, I, I imagine we'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff as it applies to actual practical, uh, you know, context. Today. Now, now it's actually sort of funny because Adam tries to be a washed up power lifter. So he can relate. Washed up, washed up booper wannabe powerlifter. That's the mm. phrase. That was uh, the worst okay. kind. Yeah. And uh, what? how's Southern Cal? I've always, I really want to visit there, but uh, especially with times now, are you guys still sort of on a lockdown sort of? Or? It's, it's, it's lessening. It's definitely lessening. I mean, Southern California just in general is everything that you would think it is. Yeah. Palm trees and sunny, sunny skies. I love it. Uh, I grew up, I was born in Denver but I grew up in Indiana. I spent my entire life in Indiana up till uh, six years ago. So what I knew was the Midwest and, you know, all four seasons, really cold winters and really hot, humid summers and uh, spring and fall were beautiful. But now out here in Southern California, it's like that spring and fall, but all year. And why like, Southern, Southern Cal? Sorry to cut you off. You no, know, I, I moved here specifically. First of all, I, I, I mean, the weather is like what I want. I'm, I'm, I, I'm over winters. No more winters for me. I'm good. I'm good with that. But I moved out here originally to work with a company called Juggernaut Training Systems. And they opened a facility here in Orange County, California, an actual in-person facility in 2015. And I, and I was already doing things with them from a content standpoint and a teaching standpoint. And uh, when they opened the facility, it was just, hey, you know, put your physical therapy office in here. And that's what I did. Um, they have since went back to being just completely online. 
uh, that was way back in 2017. So the gym was up for two years. And then once they, once it closed, I was like, well, I don't want to leave California. So I just packed up and moved 20 minutes up the road to a weightlifting gym. And I've been there ever since. I remember the very, one of the very first videos that I watched of you was the, the squat school and the hip structure. Um, and I remember being an undergrad and that just blew my mind because being a former college athlete and a high school athlete, like we were always taught that, Hey, you have to, you know, shoulders width apart, toes slightly turned out, knees can't go past your, your knee or your knees can't go past your toes or they're going to explode. Mm -hmm. um, and now with your background and such, what are you trying to do with like, you know, weightlifting and DPT? What is, I guess, best practice in your opinion, combining both of those or any other form that you would combine them with? Yeah. I mean, for me, because best practice is, that's a tough one. It's almost one of those things that we're always striving for, but can't actually define because it's so contextual. It's kind of like evidence-based practice too. It's like, well, what does that mean? Because we could all read the same research and, and, uh, implement it and, um, conceive of it in different ways. So who's, you know, who's evidence-based in, in that regard? Um, I want to say it's me cause I'm right, but I'm probably wrong, you know? So it's like, it's one of those things that's, it's, 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 we're striving for it, but it's, it's hard to define and it's probably a never ending journey. So for me, best practice is, um, just trying to stick to basic principles of, of strength and conditioning and seeing rehab is mostly just a continuum of that, as opposed to being something completely different. So, uh, being a healthcare professional certainly kind of defines a, a legal scope and those types of things. But when we just kind of set that aside, we're still just dealing with humans and, and pain and injury don't, don't all of a sudden change the fundamental principles. All they do is it's another constraint to manage and it may, it, it might change the starting point and the, uh, the ending point potentially on, in terms of kind of the, the physical preparation plan or, or those types of things. But generally it's, it's just falling back on fundamental principles of, of adaptation and physiology and, and stress and um, being okay not not so much relying on the outcomes but more of the process so um there's this thing in like in probability land and, and kind of the betting circles where you don't want to you don't want to play the resulting game so you can make the right decision that was that was probabilistically going to set you up for the highest chance of success but you could still fail and so you you can't base the quality of your decision on whether the outcome was exactly what you wanted. You've got to look at your processes. And so I just, I always try to audit my processes and, and um, you know, everybody that I see and work with is, is an, another case to add to my end. And it's another time for me to master my craft as a clinician and really reflect on the process and the decisions that I make with that athlete uh, and learn from it, you know, from their standpoint and, and from my standpoint. So I think that's just, that's best practices. Always auditing your systems and um, questioning your, your processes and, and your principles, and then having communities around you and individuals around you that can also do those things that aren't just like echo chambers and stuff like that. So um, that's kind of a broad, a broad brush stroke, uh, but just staying grounded and uh, not, not being married to, to, a, you know, any one quote unquote system or, or mental model. And you mentioned adding one more case study to your end with each and every client. And this sort of just popped in, into my head. How, and you're talking about auditing. How are some ways, I guess, you quote unquote, audit yourself? You might not do it directly. 
Um, but I mean, let's, let's assume you started to gather all of your clients into this pool of information. How, if you don't do this now, what are some ways, I guess we're just brainstorming here too. It could, there's no right or wrong answer, but how are some ways we could audit ourselves as clinicians, I guess? Yeah. And like you said, it can happen formally and informally, like you can have an actual process. So like, for example, there are, there are models out there for this exact process. Like in the military, for example, there's a model called the, the OODA loop. It's an acronym. It's, it's O-O-D-A, but it's observe, orient, decide, act, observe, orient, decide, act. And it's a loop, the OODA loop. And, and so throughout the process, you know, for us as coaches and clinicians, we are observing um, the data that we have at our disposal. So maybe it's somebody that you're meeting for the first time and um, you're observing the, the data that they're bringing forth. Maybe that's the history that they're telling you, or it's like an intake form or it's their past training programs. It's also what they're telling you maybe in your initial encounter, you know, your initial meeting with that person. And then you're orienting to all of that in a way that allows you to create a starting point for them. So it's a lot of information to take in and usually it's disjointed, right? You're not getting all this information in a nice, perfectly packaged uh, bow. And, and so you have, to, you have to make sense of that information. So you have to orient to what matters. And then you decide, you decide on the next course of action. What's the initial plan going to look like? Where's your entry point? If, if the athlete's injured, I'm deciding that this is where it's appropriate for us to enter into our rehab plan to, to head towards your goals. And then the acting is just the implementation of the program but you're constantly re-upping, you're constantly observing and reorienting and potentially deciding and acting in different ways. So that's, that's a, that's a nice model that you can use deliberately, you know, and, and I did that for a long time, like the OODA loop, but, but now it's kind of more or less just, just kind of second nature is what I'm doing, you know, every week or every month as I'm depending on how long I have the athlete potentially every day, you know, depending on our timeline, but I'm taking in any new information. I'm orienting myself to where we were and where we are now and potentially where we need to go. And then I'm making decisions based off of that. Um, and I think that is a low, a really low hanging fruit that people don't do. And especially the ones that are um, kind of get overwhelmed. Cause I get overwhelmed with, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. That's, this is essentially what, what we're trying to do is manage the uncertainty and what does uncertainty mean? Uncertainty is unknown risk. Um, so like actually risk and uncertainty are different. Risks are, are probabilities that we can quantify. So like rolling a dice, like playing some type of uh, dice game or card game, we actually know the risk. We know the probabilities and those are known risks. So we make decisions with known probabilities, but in the real world, we don't, we don't know a lot of the probabilities. And sometimes we don't even know there are, there's risks that we don't even know about. There's unknown unknowns. So that's a, there's a lot of uncertainty around these, these situations. So what we have to do is just have a process that, that gets us back to some type of center um, so that we can always have that anchor to fall back on. And that's what something like an OODA loop is, or just in general, always trying to audit your processes and um, not letting too much time go by where you've lost touch with, you know, how with the direction that things are headed. Um, so I'll stop there. Cause that's kind of, a, um, that's a lot. So oh, I, I, I actually that. like that. I've never heard of the OODA loop that I wrote that down. That's going to be something I look into, uh, for initial starting points though, you, you wrote a book sort of that touched on initial starting points or 
something about assessments. What was, what was what's your book called? So it's uh, it's a really long title and the title is only just for like search engine optimization purposes. <laughs> it's it's it called, works. yeah, mobility, stability, um, optimization and assessment for the Satchel Clean and Jerk. I don't actually know the title of my book. I think it's something like that though. <laughs> Weight, weightlifting, <laughs> movement and assessment. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that <laughs> Mobility that and stability for the Satchel Clean and Jerk. Yeah, so I just had it flipped. Okay. It's that. So t- tell us a little about, uh, I guess, don't spoil it, but when you look at someone initially and you assess them, uh, what are some movement assessments, I guess, that you do with every client or is it changing per client or what, what approach do you take with that initial step? Okay. So what I had talked about before with the OODA loop, that is a meta process. So that's, that's something that's, that's universal across the board. That, that's a model that you can use no matter what type of person that you're working with, no matter what situation, like I said, the OODA loop comes from the military. So that's, that's, a, that's kind of a process of processes. Now what we're getting into is something very, very specific. My, my book is specifically for the sport of weightlifting. It's specifically for the snatch and clean and jerk. And it was written in that way to be as, as practical of a guide to a very, very specific population. So the, the OODA loop model is, could, is, can, is over the top of that. And it's over the top of anything. So I just want to be clear about that. So my book is very, very small small uh, pond in, in what we're talking about. But as far as movement assessments, it, the movement assessment is based on the task. And this is something probably that I've, that I've changed my tune on. One of the big things that I changed my tune on um, going from strength and conditioning to where I am now, where I used to kind of subscribe to these very general broad reaching movement screens as they're called movement assessments that are not specific to a population and they're just the same movements for everybody and they're scored uh they're standardized from a position standpoint and they're standardized from a scoring standpoint and it doesn't matter who's going through them the criteria is the same the benefit of that is it's repeatable so it's it's reliable um reliable just means that 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 you can get the same uh, data if you retest somebody and you can get the same data if a different tester tests the same person. So that's good. That's a good thing. Tests, we want tests to be reliable. Um, however, reliability doesn't, doesn't mean though that the test is valid. And validity means in, in general terms that the test tests what it is supposed to test. So in a movement screen, what are we actually testing? Are we testing the, is, are we testing the person's ability to, to just perform the movements? Um, are we saying that if they don't pass the movement screen, what's that called? That's called a movement dysfunction. Well, what does that mean exactly? So the scoring criteria are often arbitrary. Uh, the movements used in these general screens are often arbitrary. They're not based on anything other than, hey, these movements make sense humans should be able to do these. So we'll just throw them together and we'll put some numbers on them. Um, And that's not necessarily how things should be done. uh, If we're trying to kind of solve answer questions and solve problems. So my, my short answer is the movement assessment is based on the task. So 
I work with weightlifters. I wrote a book about weightlifting. My movement assessment is going, the movements that we're going to assess are going to look a whole lot like the satchel clean and jerk. And in fact, that is the start of the movement assessment. Um, because if you can perform a squat in any form or fashion, that could be a goblet squat. If you can put your feet on the ground and, and squat to a desired depth, hip triple flexion, if you can hold a barbell in the front rack, and if you can hold a barbell over your head in a snatch grip and a jerk grip, those components, you now have the requisite range of motion for the task. So if I'm putting somebody through a quote unquote movement screen, I'm just trying to answer one question. Do they possess the positions required for the task? And most people actually do or are a whole, whole lot closer than they think they are to possessing the requisite range of motion for the task. They, they sometimes mistake that for not being fit for the task or not having the capacity to handle loads and velocities, but that's a completely different question. That's a training question. So for me, we whittle it down. The movement screen depends on the task. And the question that you're trying to answer, or at least I'm trying to answer is, do you have the requisite positions or range of motion? And that's a, that's a, that's a box that we try to tick off. If the answer is no, we find that the entry point, we find the next most difficult variation of said task and we put you there. So we get you training as quickly as possible. And so I'm going to pause there in case you guys have follow-ups to that. I was going to, but you literally went right into it. So you can continue boss, man. <laughs> okay. Okay. So if, so this is, this is how, and I'm, I'm talking about weightlifting specifically here. Um, but if, if you quote unquote are able to do the weightlifting movements, the snatch and clean and jerk, well, that incorporates a hinge. It incorporates a squat. It incorporates overhead. So you're actually ticking a lot of boxes off from just a weight room perspective. So I think that's why we can kind of talk about this as broad reaching as well. The snatch and clean and jerk are skills, but if somebody possesses the positions and they possess the positions for pretty much any weightlifting movement, uh, or a weight room movement, I should say. So if somebody can't put a, a PVC over their head and, and squat to a standard that you think is going to be sustainable under load, then you simply start kind of going down levels of the pattern until you find where their entry point is. So you might decide to elevate their heels, which what does that do? Well, it changes the center of mass. It shifts their center of mass forward and up so that they can now sit down back and upright without falling on their butt. But sometimes that's magic. Like all of a sudden somebody can squat to depth. So the reason that's important is because you just cleared their, their hips. Oh, wow. You actually can squat. So they're not, they no longer have to waste time trying to stretch their hips or do some type of non-specific passive range of motion intervention, something like that. Uh, an effective screen in this sense should help you learn what not to waste your time on. It's not going to tell you how good you're going to be at lifting weights or your performance. It's not going to tell you uh, what exercises are going to work for you from a training standpoint, but it, it may clue you in on where not to waste your time. So if all of a sudden you demonstrate to me that, that you have the hips to squat with a bar over your head, just from a little bit of a heel elevation, all I know is, well, we don't have to waste time tugging on your hips, but people do that. 
and, and they and they spin their wheel. So that's why that's important. Now you may say, well, elevating the heels, uh, we don't. It could still be like an ankle problem. What if their ankles are fused? You would have to elevate their heels, right? So it doesn't really clear the ankles of having the requisite range of motion. Um, but first of all, weightlifting shoes have an elevated heel anyway, so you're already kind of in the sport uh, when we're talking about it from that standpoint. But you could take the heel lift away then and say, okay, at least I know you can squat. I'm going to take the heel lift away so it becomes harder again. But now I'm going to take the overhead component out of the equation. Because that's another variable that makes a squat harder is trying to hold something over your head. So let's just take that out of the equation and let's just look at the lower body. Sometimes that clears things up. All of a sudden they can squat on flat ground. Whereas before during the overhead squat, it didn't look like their legs moved at all. So it's like, oh. So you do have the lower body, just all of it, hips, knees, and ankles. You can squat. So what was it about having a bar over your head that that caused uh, some type of roadblock in the pattern? So you're starting to just step by step identify where there is some type of chink in the armor. Um, does that make sense? So I yeah. see it seems like a lot from just that movement assessment, you're able to kind of, like you said, check a lot of boxes, not to waste a lot of time and just kind of get them going. What is, I guess, the most difficult part about either finding regressions or progressions from each movement? That's the easy part. To be honest, the, the, the difficult part is just getting the buy-in and getting people patient enough to understand that movement is a skill and they're not going to get better at it overnight. And we tend to, as humans, tend to gravitate towards the things that give us that short-term fix like you get up off a foam roller and you kind of feel looser and you're like, Ooh, that's the thing. Like that's going to be the thing, but it never gets any better than that. <laughs> that's like, you get that. And it's always like a drug. It's like a drug. It's only the first time that's ever that good. And then it's like diminishing returns from there. Um, and the same with like static stretching. Um, but those things give you that short term change. So you're like, Oh, this must be it. So imagine like I got this little change today with 15 minutes of foam rolling. Imagine if I do this every day, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like Gumby in a month. And it just, of course, it doesn't work like that. And so that's the, that's the hardest part is for people to understand how, how much deliberate practice you have to put in to actually get good at something. But I just try to bring it back to like, everybody has something that they got good at. So I just ask them like, what do you do? Like, what's a hobby? It's like, oh, I play the piano. Did you, were you good at the piano right away? No, it took me years. Okay. This is not going to take years but the process of learning is the same, whether we're talking about movement or any skill. So we go back to our example with the overhead squat. My goal is to find that variation that challenges them, but if they really focus, they can get it done. So let's say it's the overhead squat with a heel lift, but the heel lift is just enough to give them the position but not so much that it's like easy. They can just like, without thinking, just drop into the position because no learning is going to occur. So it'll be, it'll be somewhere in between them breaking out into a cold sweat, trying to hold an isometric overhead squat and then not being able to do it at all. And so we just kind of gauge that we tinker a little bit with like the size of the plate, but it's, I mean, it's deliberate practice. It's them squatting slow, slow, slow. As soon as I see that bar start to tip forward or them start to kind of lose their position or they panic and they want to stand back up and say, no, stay in there. It might take 30 seconds to do one rep. Um, but it's really just them learning how to coordinate their body. And that's, that is the hardest part is getting people just to do that. Slow the hell down, focus, 
this is going to suck because it's going to be tedious as hell and it's going to be boring. But if you actually want to do these things, this is the type of thing, just like when you were learning the piano, it was boring as hell to learn scales, you know, whatever the hell, any other skill that you have to learn the basics in. So it's really just that, man. The regressions, if the principles apply, like let's say you just want to do it in a goblet squat. It's the same thing. It's just the person, it's getting the person to, to buy into just doing it the way that's going to be sustainable, you know, under heavier load. Um, you can go on YouTube and, and find all sorts of cool squatting variations. That's really just it's secondary. Like experience. Yeah, that's the experience yeah. part. But I agree with you that the hardest part is that buy-in and really trying to get your your point across. It's like, hey, this is going to take time. And for anyone listening, like, this stuff takes time and I think as you get more experienced, it only gets a little bit more frustrating. I always make a joke about myself with poverty bench. I've been benching 330 for, I couldn't tell you how many freaking years, but you, you don't go out and you're like, well, this is dumb. I'm not going to bench anymore. You just continuously go at it day after day after day and try to find something that will give you subtle improvements. Um, and, and I think you dropped some serious smoke and Adam's touching on it and the the analogy between any skill that someone got good at whether it's their job whether it's the piano instance you gave they can they practice that and they like i can't play the piano but like if someone that can play the piano came to me and be like hey i can teach you the piano i would just have to like put time into it and we see the results with dieting with weightlifting Mm -hmm. with movements if they just put the time into it, and I'm not speaking to us directly, but anyone listening to this, if you, if you just work at it, it will come. Now, Quinn, let me ask you a question real quick. What do you think the what do you think the problem is with individuals just not having patience? Is it the society? What what have you found it being for being so difficult for just that process? Yeah. I mean, it's just a human thing. I mean, it's all of us too. It's not to say that I don't want things now. (laughs) Like I want all these things to happen yesterday. You know what I mean? So it's, it's also just the state, the, the life that we live and, and the social media world these days, everything is quick. Everything's a quick hitter. I mean, even just like the evolution of social media is kind of a microcosm because we went, we're going from like YouTube, which is can be long form to Facebook, which is like shorter form, but can still be long form to Instagram. Captions are getting shorter to TikTok and Snapchat. And like, so it's like shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And our, I think that's just the, that's kind of a microcosm of what we're talking about. Um, it's hard for us to think long-term and we could just, we don't have context for that necessarily, especially if you're somebody who hasn't done that before and you're separating training is something different. And that's why I think it's important to, when you have a client to, to find meaning for them, like what, get to know them a little bit and figure out what makes them tick because you'll be able to pull parallels that'll help with buy-in. Like when you find that example, they'll be like, okay, that makes sense. It doesn't mean that they're want to hear it, but they'll be like, okay, like I get it. Cause all they're seeing are the are the beautiful videos of Lu Jun on Instagram in a perfect overhead squat. They don't understand the years and years and years of tedious work that went into that end product. So when you bring it home like that, it's just context. Um, and I, I just think it's kind of the way that we're wired, uh, that just that short term kind of survival, like what's the next step? What's the next step? And what's the easiest, what's the path of least resistance too? 
Like, why would we want to work harder if we can get something in an easier fashion? And if like, I would tell you to do the easier thing, if that were like going to work, um, I don't know, making you do these boring, tedious things be just because it, I think it's funny. If there were a faster, better way, then, then I would have you do that. But I would also say that these things are like when, especially when it comes to motor learning, because I, I think people also are like, well, structural or structure, structure, structure. A lot of this is just coordination and you actually have the ability, like if I lay you on the table, your joints move enough. What you don't have is the skill to put it all together when you're on your feet, fighting gravity, fighting external load. Again, completely different conversation. But a lot of these things are nonlinear. Like sometimes it, it'll just click. Like they'll be struggling, struggling, struggling. And then all of a sudden move, movement just clicks. Now that it may regress, you know, they come back and they've forgotten how to do it, but isn't that the case with literally everything that we've ever learned? Like all of a sudden you just got it. Like you woke up and the thing that you were struggling with, like week for like a week before you're like, holy shit, like I understand this now, or I can do it. It could be school, like anything. So these processes are nonlinear. You all of a sudden you make this quantum leap. And then that, that process itself never changes. Like you said, like you're going to hit that 330 barrier until one day you just come into the gym and the stars align all of a sudden you bench 345, like just out of nowhere, it just happens. Like what the fuck, you know? So when, when somebody has been in these processes long enough, they start to understand that. So my conversations with somebody who have, who has been training for you know a long time is different than somebody who's a beginner and they just don't have context for this and they, they don't understand those, those idiosyncrasies of the, of the training process. So um, you know, that's not to say that we don't like want it to be linear, but the reality is it's not. And we have those experiences enough over time that we're like, okay, I get it. I think it's funny that you say, you know, someday it just clicks. And I always tell the kids that I coach for basketball that, man, all I need is one good shot. And then you guys are in trouble. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I say, um, but kind of, you know, you, we mentioned, you know, the, the movement assessment and how it's more like a skill component and diligent practice over and over again. Now, right now, let's we get into it. Let's go into that conversation of working around pain or just injury itself. What are you monitoring? Right. Because that stuff is never linear. Right. You have a really good day and sometimes it's complete shit again. What are you or how are you um, taking all of that in and then, I guess, bring it back into the program for them able to train? It's very similar, but like you said, the pain is just a, now it's another variable that we have to manage. It's a very unpredictable variable. So let's say, cause a lot of times people come in with, let's say they're coming in post-op. Well, pain, the pain experience is like secondary to that. Cause they had a surgery. They had a, you know, they had a catastrophic, catastrophic injury. Maybe they tore their ACL or they ruptured their Achilles or they, you know, dislocated their shoulder or something like that. It's almost understood that some level of discomfort is going to be inherent in that process. Cause they're like, yeah, well, I, you know, I snapped my shit up and I had a surgery. So like, okay, it's going to hurt a little bit. I get that. So then the conversation is like easier. It's about physical rehab and like, they get that. But most cases, at least the ones that I see are not post-op. They're not even, they don't even have imaging. They just have these, these pain, uh, these, these pain experiences like tendinopathy, for example, like they're, they're not coming to me saying, Hey, you know what? I think I lack mechanical stiffness in my tendon. I need to come see you for rehab. No, they say my knee, the front of my knee hurts right here where it attaches to my kneecap. When I run and jump low back pain, non-specific, 
not really linked to, to anything that structure, um, which is kind of the nature of, of pain. A lot of times that there's a very, very poor correlation, um, with, with quote unquote structural abnormalities. So we're dealing with that just weird phenomena of pain that we don't even understand. And so the problem becomes for me, when I try to make pain, the goal as, as in like pain-free rehab or pain-free exercise or pain-free training, that's our goal because I can't promise that I can't predict the next setback. And I'm, I'm kind of setting a, a unrealistic expectation. So right from day one, I try to get the person to create goals that are oriented to their performance aspirations and their activities of meaning, not be pain-free. That is, I, I say on my intake form here, like uh, in this section, I want you to write your goals. Quote, be pain-free is not sufficient. Don't type that. That's what I write. Base your goals around meaningful activities. What is it that you want to get back to that you can't? Because that's really why people are coming to see me. Like it's not because they experience pain because in our heart of hearts, we know that pain is going to be a part of life sometimes. And we're, we experience it every now and then, but we don't go to the doctor every time we experience pain. We go to the doctor when we feel like it's become unmanageable and there's too much uncertainty and we don't have meaning behind it. And we're scared. Essentially we're losing, we're losing control in some capacity and we're losing meaning, um, in some way. So right away, I want to kind of shift the focus to function function for them is whatever they care about. And then that way it's, it's easier to measure because we can create the plan. We can create the movements, the activities, we can kind of measure their capacity for that activity currently compared to the capacity that they would want to get back to. And then that gap is what we're trying to fill. And so pain just becomes like, I don't want to, I don't want to make a parallel and say it's exactly the same, but it's very similar. Pain becomes a thing like fatigue. That is just, that is just something that you have to kind of keep tabs on. Like I don't have a fatigue management program for my athletes. I have a program, I have a strength and conditioning program. And if they get too tired and their performance starts to decrease, well, then I modify the dosage. So pain is very similar. They're coming to me with a certain baseline of pain experience, a certain uh, degree of tolerance for their meaningful activities. If we are going through our rehab program and that tolerance is decreasing, as in like they're regressing, they're now able to do less and less. The pain experience is becoming more intense or um, gripping them more. That's we're going in the wrong direction. So we need to do our, our audit. We need to do our OODA loop and reorient and, and uh, figure out what's happening here. But to, to, to answer your question, the principles are largely the same. Um, and, and pain doesn't make it a separate process. It just makes it even more unpredictable and puts more importance on keeping things very basic and, um, very, very simple in the beginning so that one, the person can actually do it. And two, it's less noisy. Cause if I give somebody 25 different exercises that all pretty much do the same thing, I'm just introducing just randomness into the system. If they got better, if they got worse, I have no idea why, because they were doing so much and no sequential order, really no organization. Um, so if my rehab program looks like two things, these are the two exercises that I want you to do. I want you to hit them at four times this week. And from a pain perspective, 
it's okay if you feel your thing, but it's not allowed to change the way that you move. And they usually, we, we, we find meaning in that. And what I mean by that is, let's say it's anterior knee pain when they squat. And one of our exercises is like a wall sit and a goblet squat, just low grade exposure therapy, essentially. I say, you're allowed to feel your knee, but it has to be at a level where it doesn't change the way that you move because of it. So you're thinking to yourself, you've probably all had these experiences where it's like, oh, I feel my thing, but I'm still putting the same force into the ground and I'm still moving how I would normally move. It's just there. I'm just aware of it versus like, I feel my knee to the extent that I'm shifting away from it, whether I want to or not. That's where we're, we don't want to be because we're just kind of like feeding a habit of, of avoidance essentially, which is defeating the purpose here. So it's that we're giving them those kind of like guardrails. They're not rigid, but they're, they're tangible and meaningful enough to the person where they can kind of take some ownership and, and uh, make some decisions, you know, on the fly. And then the feedback that they give me session after session, week after week, clues me in on if we're handling this well, and then we can, you know, jump a level. Maybe it's goblet squat to a heavier weight. Maybe it's goblet squat to back squat. Maybe it's a double leg wall sit to a single leg wall sit. You know, every, every level that we're, maybe it's incorporating jumps in some, in some capacity, which we didn't tolerate before. So it's, uh, it's, it's trimming down the fat, keeping things as, as less noisy as possible and uh, using pain as information rather than something to be like a red light, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing I, I always appreciated about you is you you dumb things down, quote unquote, not in a disrespectful way that everyone should be able to kind of understand. Um, and in essence, right, you try to keep things as specific as possible and just kind of control, like you said, for all that variable. So we can kind of almost pinpoint, okay, maybe it's not the load. Maybe it's the range of motion we have to modify. There's so many things we can modify to still hopefully keep it as specific as possible for that individual. So it's still functional for them and they can still progress, hopefully, in the right direction. It sets them up for like small victories. I mean, because, you know, being injured sucks. And it's almost like it's just failure after failure, right? Because it's because... They go back in, they try to do something, they try to go hard and they can't. And then they take like a couple of weeks off. And then what happens in a, a couple of weeks off, you get deconditioned. So now your capacity and fitness is even lower. So you go back to the gym and now it, it takes even less to set you back. And then that, so it's like that vicious, frustrating cycle of all or nothing. And we call it like rehab purgatory. You just get stuck behind bars constantly. Einstein has a quote. He says, keep things as simple as possible, but not simpler. You say, okay, so keep things simple, but what's too simple? If we go back to the uncertainty uh, conversation, the more, um, the, the, the more prior information you have, or I should say the less prior information you have, the simpler things should be. So if you're working with somebody and you don't know what's gonna flare them up and their pain is very unpredictable, I am going to keep things as simple as possible because that's just, there's too many other factors that could play a part here. Um, the more unknowns, the more simple things need to get. So I don't know if this amount of load and I don't know if this amount of volume is going to flare them up. I know that this amount of volume flared them up last week, but does that mean it's going to flare them up next week? I don't know. So let me start. This, this is going to yeah. start cutting you off. So I know this is going to be like, it depends question, but what have you seen 
usually trend to be what causes certain flare-ups and let's say tendinopathy within the knee that you were talking about? Well, if we, if you want to simplify it, it's, it's, it's a load greater than capacity, but load is not just their physiological capacity. It's also their life stressors. And that's also whether they ate like shit the last three days and didn't get enough calories and it's all the stress. So stress is stress. So there is no volume. There's no exercise. That's usually the culprit. It's there. That's, that's kind of my point here is that because there's so many factors involved, you, you don't know the weight of each factor. You don't know this one's bringing 37% of the, of the, uh, the stress to the table. If I had all those numbers, then we could come up with some type of algorithm, but, but because all we know is that there's so many factors at play. And all I know is currently you can tolerate this. You can't tolerate that. I know where you want to get to. I know where you currently are. I'm going to give you a starting point of training load based on gut feeling a lot of times, because I mean, it's going to be arbitrary. Like, I think you're going to be able to handle this just because most people can handle this. And I also know that you came from a program where you were doing this. So I'm going to give you less than that. And you're hopefully going to do okay with it. Um, so it's like, you're just kind of playing an educated guess as far as volume and intensity. Now, do you prioritize volume? Do I prioritize intensity? What movements do you prioritize? Those are depending on the goal. So if I have a physique athlete, we're going to try to, we don't have to build muscle. We don't have need heavy weights to build muscle. It's nice, but you can use lightweights to build muscle. I mean, that's BFR. That's all the BFR literature. You, you, you can build muscle at 30%. And in fact, you don't need BFR either. You just have to go to failure. It's just going to suck. So, you know, the sets are going to be long. The, the volume load is going to be high. But if your goal is muscle, we can build muscle or at least mitigate muscle loss relatively easily, uh, especially if intensity is your trigger. We've got a program that can, that can help here and we can titrate intensity back in. Now, if you're a strength athlete, maybe you're, you're flipping that focus and you're saying, we want to, we want to try to hold the line on intensity. And when I say hold the line, you probably can't tolerate the intensities that you want. And we'll just define intensity as percentage of one rep max here to make it simple. You probably can't tolerate the intensities that you would want to, but let's say you can tolerate 70% of one rep max during a squat. Cool. Let's, let's make that, let's hold the line there. So let's try to get reps at that intensity throughout the week. We could build volume with other means that are maybe uh, that beat you up less. So belt squats, split squats, leg extension, leg press, things that are more constrained, but that will still allow you to get load through the system. And then we can titrate more volume in on the meaningful activity, which is the back squat. As I see that you're tolerating the current bolus of work. Okay. Um, now, again, you might ask, well, how long is it like if they do good for a week or they do good for two weeks, then you increase again gut feeling. Like when do you call deloads for your athletes? It's when I think they should have one <laughs> or, you know, or you say, well, I just, I just go three on one off because it's just, I don't want to have to manage that uncertainty. And I just let the three on one off make that decision for me no matter what. And that's fine too. Um, but you would, if somebody who ascribes to that model would probably admit that, yeah, there are probably times where we deload too soon if I'm just married to that three on one off and there's probably times where I should deload and I don't because it's not week four yet. So it's really about like, what are you willing to give? So the goals, the way that we program the movements we use, 
whether we prioritize volume or intensity depends on the, the goal, the type of athlete and their, and their goals. It also depends on what they can handle. Sometimes they can't handle either. And you're just doing isometrics for two weeks, you know, just trying to get them to, to do something that, that puts load through the system. Um, sometimes it's completely different. You know, sometimes it's like a mental thing and people just need to get out and, and get away from the weight room, but it, that's more rare than that's much more rare. So getting far afield of the original question, I'll stop there and let you pull me back in. So, I mean, we're, we'll bounce off of that. I, I sort of like uh, what you mentioned about there's so many different stressors that just impacts one's ability to progress with something, whether it's their goal, whether it's a movement that will help them get to their goal. Mm -hmm. uh, but what are some great ways or what are some ways you incorporate just either listening or paying attention to those stressors? Uh, I guess your deloads, is that something you just, what approach do you take with those deloads? But other than that, I'll let you bounce around this question as well. Yeah. So it's a good one. Um, well, I mean, we could talk deload specifically. I, I tend to be a deload as needed type of person, but I'm flexible on that. Um, I was kind of up, I was, I was raised, so to speak, on a, a more of a rigid paradigm, three on one off, four on one off, um, much more kind of Soviet-esque, you know, sequential periodization and, and these types of things. I'm, I'm more of a concurrent uh, guy, uh, kind of a bottom-up guy uh, now, only probably because that's how I prefer it personally. Um, but I, I give that choice, especially if the athletes are kind of experienced. And if they're coming to me with like preferences on scheduled deloads and these like more of a rigid system, I'm fine with that, you know, cause it doesn't, that doesn't change uh, training principles of specificity and progressive loading and, and stuff like that. So I, I'm, I'm not a, a stickler on those types of things, but I do tend to prefer kind of an as needed uh, deal. And I think that gets to your question more so that type of system requires some pretty good communication and it requires you to, to have to kind of repeat yourself in terms of the athletes, you know, you ask them like, would you really think you're going to be able to add 10 pounds to the bar every time you walk into the gym from now till the end of your lifting career? And they'll be like, no, but when they have a bad day in the gym, they get all pissy, like as if they were expecting to be able to add 10 pounds to the bar every single time they come to the gym. Like I, and I do it too. No bad days in the gym are super frustrating, but you, you kind of have to say like, we can't let one day, and this is pain. This is anything like I, we talked about this in the beginning. We know that training is this up and down process. It's like the stock market. You don't sell your stocks when the you know, on one day that the system drop or the, the market drops, because you know, when you zoom out, the overall trend is up. If you keep coming back or if you keep your money in um, and training is the same. If you keep coming back, you know, that over time, the overall trend is up. So we can't get too high on the good days or too low on the bad days. We can't let one day dictate our decisions. We make note of it because it is a data point. So now if I'm starting to see trends and trends I triage a lot. Like my monitoring system is different things. It's, it's my conversations with the actual athlete. It's not just me behind this, the Excel spreadsheet or something like that. It's actual conversation. It's maybe them telling me consistently now for um, the same session, multiple weeks in a row, or just the entire, you know, multiple training sessions sequentially that 
they feel certain ways. The weights feel heavier. They feel more tired. I then say, okay, that's interesting. Let me look at your actual output. And their actual output is also corroborating that doubt numbers are dropping from previous weeks. Pain, uh, pain experiences are increasing. I'm seeing their notes instead of them just like clicking. I completed the exercise. I'm seeing like paragraphs now <laughs> at the end of training days. And so it's like, Oh God, you know, so that's starting to build. Um, I do, I use session RPE for a lot of my athletes. It's a very rough session. RPE is beautiful. in the fact that it's something that you can use for any training modality across populations, it's, you're just rating the session from zero to 10, but it's also just because it's so broad reaching. It's also just not like specific to anything. So it, it's just cluing me in like, Oh, you usually rate this session like a six or a seven, but today it was a nine. So you rated this session as way harder than it usually is. And then sure enough, your physical output's decreasing. So your, your internal load, your psychological load is increasing. You're perceiving the session as more difficult and yet your output is declining. That's the opposite of what we want, right? If anything, we want the same session to feel easier. Even if you repeated the same weights, if your adaptation is favorable, like, oh, it feels easier. I'm crushing this day. Um, so I'm looking at all these kind of information, all these uh, different data points. Um, and ultimately I'm having a conversation with the athletes say, Hey, we have a couple choices. We can, we can switch things up. It's very possible that this is just one of those blips in the radar that if we just keep our head down and just let it pass, it will pass and there will be an upswing. Our other option is that we can pull back um, and we can change up. Maybe these exercises are getting a little stale for you, not having the effect that they once did. And so it's this shared decision-making process. Um, if it's a new athlete or if it's somebody that sometimes I'm, I'm more of a dictator than I am, than it is a partnership. And, and you just kind of make those calls based on uh, decisions, the decisions that you make, but I'm, I'm trying to get it to the point where it's a partnership and they have some say. So I'm, I'm, I'm presenting them with the information that I'm seeing. I'm presenting them with our, our options and the possible ramifications of continuing on versus pulling back. And the decision that we make is just kind of, you know, based on their, their feedback and, and in the moment. Um, I have to sometimes remind myself that it's not about me. Like, cause I think in my mind, I'm like, dude, it's just like, chill out. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is going to go away. That's my mind though. That's me. So I have to understand that if they want, if they're not comfortable with the current circumstance, this is not about me, it's about them. And if, if I'm falling back on, on first principles, it shouldn't, having to change things up shouldn't be a big deal in the long run. So you guys know, it's just kind of that coaching, that's kind of the art, so to speak, I guess, as they, as they say. You actually introduced uh, two new things in that answer. The first one is something I'll just mention, uh, talking with clients, so it's something we do too. And it's not something I'll admit that it's not something that I used to do, but I'm going to do going forward is like in times where someone's stress is increasing, they have finals coming up, mm. how they have uh, a nagging ache or pain that's been going on and their sleep's been getting worse. So, I mean, these are all things that stress is getting worse. Um, and I can, I, I used to always be like, okay, we got three like red flags right there that we need to do a deload or we need to take a step back or change something up. And usually, unfortunately, I was always in the mindset, okay, I'll just make this call. We'll, we'll take a step back. We'll 
reduce the amount of times we exercise this week uh, to handle our deload. But I like how you sort of mentioned presenting the data and giving them control and let them know like, okay, we can either push through this. It might not be beneficial. And if we keep seeing a trend down, I might have to step in. Uh, and if you want to do that, we can, uh, or uh, we can just go ahead, take a deload this week and it's not going to set us back. And even, it may even propel us forward even farther. Um, so I just wanted to capitalize, go ahead, Adam. Yeah. So wouldn't you even say that opportunity to just communicate with your client is also just a teaching moment and allowing them to figure out who you are as a coach and better understand who they are as a client or patient. That's how I've utilized it is okay. Like, right. You let me know all of this is happening. Okay. Here's your choices. And I think what Quinn, if I'm right, you were kind of saying, okay, here's your two opportunities. Maybe this is I'm trying to push you to this answer, but I want you to kind of come to the conclusion yourself. So there's that much more buy-in. It's a it's an opportunity for to build the relationship. You're you're both spot on. You're both spot on. And but you're still you know you are still the expert, so to speak. So if they they wouldn't let you coach them, you know, if they didn't value your your opinion. So like what essentially what we're describing is the informed consent process in healthcare, but it is informed consent is also in these exact situations. You're informing the person. It's ultimately their decision because even if, you know, Chris, even if you make the decision and say, you know what, we're making a change. And the other person's like, no, I'm just quitting. I'm not letting you coach me anymore. Like they ultimately, they still have the power, right? Like they can do that. Like tomorrow they could be gone um, and you can't stop them. So that's, that's a decision that they could make. So even if you want to be a dictator, you can't. Uh, ultimately. So what you can do, like you guys are saying, present, here's what I'm seeing. Here are our options. My, you might have recommendations. You can still voice your recommendations. My recommendation is based on what I'm seeing here or, you know, what's going to, I think probably give us the most, um, what's going to be the best from a risk reward standpoint, you know, cost, cost benefit, whatever you want to talk about. Here's, here's where I'm leaning. What do you think? Or you don't even have to skew them that way. Sometimes I'll just like present them with the evidence, present them with the options. I want to hear what they say first. I'm just curious. Like it clues you in on a lot. And then based on their response, you might chime in, you know, ultimately you might end up at the same place that you would have ended up like deloading. You know what I mean? All signs point there, but that interaction is really, really powerful. Um, it gives them ownership. It it's kind of solidifies the experience. It lets them know, that you're paying attention. Cause if I'm the athlete, it's like, Oh, coach is like noticing all these things, you know? And, and like, we're having this conversation that, that stuff goes a long way. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's what I just wanted to mention. Like I had never taken the approach of, I mean, I would educate them. I, I would explain the whole glass being filled with water and the waters, the stress uh, mm-hmm. analogy, uh, but I never capitalized on that moment just to build the relationship. And I think that is probably the most important thing within that, because ultimately they're going to get past whatever they're going through, whether finals pass by and all their stress goes away, they start sleeping better and whatever. Um, but just really getting to get down to that individual level and just trying to build that relationship is so much more powerful and will get them, I think, committed so much more to the program as well. And you know what too, it, 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 it takes some pressure off of you, 
as the coach and as a clinician too. Like as a, we just want, you know, we want to have the perfect program. And if, if somebody doesn't do well, it, it's like, oh, wow. It's like, I must have not made the right decision as a clinician, especially with pain and injuries. Like, oh, we want to, we have to fix them. But this, this informed, this shared decision-making takes some of the pressure off of the practitioner, coach or clinician, because if we present the options, provide our feedback and recommendations, but ultimately, ultimately it's a conversation to be had. Ultimately it's their decision. Um, we can try to nudge them, but it, it takes some, it takes some of the pressure off of us to be the fixer, to be the know all be all. Um, and it, it puts some onus on them, not in a bad way. It just kind of sets the tone that this is a partnership more so than, a, than, you know, it's this top down, I say you do. And it, it just, it, there's, I mean, there's so many ways to approach a certain situation. So just going back to building the partnership, it, if the client picks it, it's not like it's the wrong decision. Like we know if it was the wrong decision, like, okay, you had a broken ankle and now you want to squat with 300 pounds. Like, okay, no, we're not yeah, doing that. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> Let's not be stupid. Exactly. Right. <laughs> totally. Um, but, but, it just, but if it's three days of like bad training, do any of us really know what the best decision is? Mm. To no, because we don't know what's coming. We want to know. We all want to know. We would love to know. Maybe we just need a foam roll to feel better before the workout. Like, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, so now then, that we talked about squatting on a broken ankle, Quinn, I kind of want to get your thoughts on this. So, right, talking about Ebola and stuff like that. Is there any correlation you believe in like poor loading or poor movement, poor mechanics? Do those correlate at all? Or are you in that, that mindset of, right, however you load it, that's how you're going to adapt to it. So quality over quantity or quantity over quality? Um, well, I think um, hmm, neither. Neither, both. There's a difference. I think I frame things from a performance perspective. So from a positioning standpoint, my stance is I pick the positions that are going to create the most consistent outcome. Um, so for like a front squat, for example, there's a reason that our bodies tend to self-organize to a certain position to support a, a front squat with a straight bar versus how you pick up a stone in a strongman competition. Those, those torso positions and, and spinal angles look much different because it depends on the task. So I, for me, it's, ta it's task, individual environment. Always, always, always. The pain and the injury side of things, I don't even touch because there are always going to be instances where somebody in that position doesn't get hurt, somebody in that position does get hurt, and then you can pick as many people who are complete opposites and then everybody in between. So for me, it's about performance. And I think, I think injury is all about, um, largely about chance, but some, a, a lot about preparation. So you can, if you, you can squat valgus pretty much all you want. Um, if, if you're slow enough with the progression of volume and uh, intensity and, and velocity over months and months and years and years and years, you can be as healthy doing that as you can in any other position. My frame though is performance. There are certain positions and leverages just from a biomechanics standpoint that you're going to hit a ceiling. 
there's a reason that most people can't Jefferson curl the same weight that they can maximally deadlift off the floor. There's a reason when you have a maximum effort back squat on your back that your whole foot is on the ground and not just your toes and your heels are completely off the ground. Like there's, there's obvious things like that, that we can laugh about, but then we, but then we say biomechanics, like the movement optimi optimization or movement optimist land is like, oh, biomechanics don't matter. We're all just like free flowing butterflies. And then the hardcore biomechanists are like, it's all position, puts you in a rigid box. You're going to fucking, your disc is going to blow out if your spine flexes 10 degrees. And it neither is correct. It's always the middle. Um, but I, I frame my thing my mindset is based on performance and what's going to give me the most uh, consistent outcome of the task. So in that respect, positions matter. Um, from an injury standpoint, it just gets really murky. I, I could say maybe an example like ACL, because I said squatting with valgus, but your ACL is not, people think ACL with a valgus squat, but your ACL is slacked when your knee is bent. So your knees, you basically be touching at the bottom of a squat and your ACL is really not taking a whole lot of brunt. Um, maybe your meniscus is or, or something like that, but you, you tear your ACL when your knee is almost straight. Most, almost all ACL tears happen at less than 30 degrees of, of knee flexion. So basically a straight knee, a lot of times on one leg. So you're landing from a jump or you're cutting something like that. And then you have this combination of, of moments, uh, tibial, uh, Tibial external rotation, femoral internal rotation, knee abduction, which is like your tibia just going brat to the side uh, relative to your femur. And all of those things are what valgus constitutes. So valgus is like a general term for a, a combination of positions at the hip, knee, and ankle. And then with enough force and with a certain knee angle, that's a really, really good recipe for a torn ACL. The thing is that the ACL tears within 40 milliseconds of your foot hitting the, the ground four hundredths of a second. That is faster than we can even think, but think about thinking 40 milliseconds. So there's really nothing to be done to prevent those occurrences where an athlete just plants their foot in the ground and their ACL just goes. That's just things that happen. Those are the, that's just the occurrence of sport. That's never going to be preventable. Um, if, I also don't know if there's a, a um, benefit to like deliberately training valgus for the sake of training valgus because they're going to get plenty of valgus playing the sport. And and my thought is there's going to you're going to be putting a ceiling on the on the performance output when you kind of like try to progressively load in these weird positions. So I'm going to have the person kind of freely move on the field and during cutting movements and during reactive drills with opponents and stuff like that. Like I'll allow kind of more freedom, but when we're talking about the weight room, I want to impart as much progressive load on the system as I can. And I don't necessarily want to put some type of like positional constraint just for the sake of it when I don't even know if that's actually doing anything. Um, but I do know that if we put them in certain positions, they're going to be able to leverage more load and more load over time. And so that's where I tend to just be a little bit more traditional in the weight room from a position standpoint, but it's not out of fear of injury. It's from a from a frame of maximizing performance. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. And I, I guess I want to go a different route in something that is right. Weightlifting, powerlifting, strongman, those are very, very easy and simple to, I would say, program and work mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. 
what is your mindset of utilizing the weight room to transfer over to performance in basketball, football? Because right yeah. nowadays, it seems non-contact injuries, like we just saw Victor Oladipo today, he went up for a, a backdoor somebody, went for a, a dunk and landed wrong, and boom, I, it looked like an ACL. And you have this individual at down in uh, Miami, David Alexander, I'll call him, and he – He's like, oh, it's if you look at it, his ankle this, his knee this, and it's all biomechanics. And I think you can't really control for that because maybe, like you said, it was a fluke. It just happened. And he, his explanation would say, no, he wasn't loading right. He wasn't training right. And this is what happens when you don't pay attention to movement over time. This is what eventually is going to happen. Well, look, I mean – First of all, Old Depot already had, I mean, he tore his quad tendon a couple of years ago. So he's already got that kind of underlying, I don't want to call it a black eye, but the, you know how to predict a future injury. The best predictor of a future injury is a past injury. So somebody's already coming in with a catastrophic injury like that. Their, their risk is already increased, period. Um, and it looked like to me, because I saw the same play, it looked like to me it was the same knee and he was, he's grabbed the top of his patella almost as if it was like a re-aggravation, maybe Maybe he tore or something different, but regardless, you know, somebody like that's already at risk, um, no matter how perfectly they move in the weight room. But the, that argument that you just described is never going to die because you can't necessarily disprove it. I, you can't say that had the athlete moved differently in that moment, like we call it a counterfactual where you take a, an event that happened in real life and then you try to play the, what if this had been the case game would this have still happened so if victor oladipo had changed his joint angles somehow or derrick rose when he first tore his acl or anybody you know um had they landed differently in that moment would they have gotten injured and it's possible that they wouldn't have um so you can't say that positions don't matter the question is though could we have predicted and prevented that and i will go to my grave and say no and anybody who's played a sport in a uh, played a sport that's fast and unpredictable and chaotic, like all of these team sports, and you just you're not thinking about your body um, now. But the weight you room, are, you're more likely to get hurt if anything. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. You're internally focused. Um, you're not just reacting to the environment, right? You're 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 totally right. But the weight room is still probably our best bet. Because if it is, if it's, you know what, we can't prevent these things from happening, but it are, what we can do is make the tissues as uh, tolerable to absorbing and producing force as possible, absorbing load, I guess, if we want to talk about it from an injury standpoint, because technically the stronger you are, the more at risk you are for injury, because you can produce more force. Like you can actually supersede your tissues. If you're weak and just slow, your risk is lower because you don't, do anything fast or hard enough to, 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 for it to make a difference. Um, there's that argument, but the weight room is still our chance to make those tissues and that system as resilient to load as possible. So I don't think when we, when we whittle it down, I don't think it actually changes anything that we've been doing for decades, get them as strong as possible, get them to be able to produce as much force as possible, then get them to be able to produce as much force as fast as possible. That may be the quality that we miss. Sometimes because peak force to get to peak force is usually slower than most sporting movements occur, like a cut, a run, a jump. Those things happen like in half a second. 
And if you have somebody on a force plate or some type of force measuring device, they can get to a peak, but it's not till like after one, it's like one to three seconds. It's slow. So what we're, what we're really after in, in athletics is that, is that impulse or that rate of force development, the rate at which you can produce the force. Um, and maybe that's the quality that sometimes we miss if, if our weight room program is only slow and grindy. Um, so you're just kind of surfing that force velocity curve, but you know what, if you've got jumps, if you've got heavy squats, uh, medium squats, and maybe those are like split squats or something, and you've got jumps and you've got some loaded jumps and you've got some sprints and you've got some eccentric work, maybe like some Nordics or something like that, or some reverse Nordics or some Copenhagen adductor planks and some, some calf work, like the things that I just described are like every basic you know, just resistance training program, you're probably covering your bases. Um, and if somebody gets hurt, that had largely probably had to do with chance and you're going to be playing the resulting game. Don't audit the result, audit the process. And if your process is sound, you say that sucks because I really liked that kid, but I don't know if there was anything that we could have done about that. Now, what sucks about that is the sport coach doesn't want to hear that shit. And especially like the higher level of sport you go, like the owner and the GM also doesn't want to hear that. Oh, it's just chance. This is just uncertainty that we're managing. Yeah. Like that's why these staff, that's why they get cleared out every three years and that sucks. But um, so that's not the way that the world tends to think, but that is probably the reality of it. Unfortunately. Now, I guess to kind of close you off, cause I know it's getting time. Um, what, what aspect do you see or hope this field, exercise science, physical therapy, health and wellness in general, where do you hope this field to kind of go in the next five, 10 years? Man, I think, I think we're headed in the, just even us having this conversation, like um, uh, strength conditioning coaches and physical therapists and, and rehab professionals, like this is where I want the field to go. I want it to start us uh, start having more crosstalk in terms of, of high performance and sports med. Um, you know, that's why we created clinical athlete. I mean, all these communities. So, I mean, to be completely honest, it's going in that direction. I think, um, from my standpoint, from a, from a rehab standpoint, I think a big problem for us is that we tend to underload and under prepare our athletes when it comes to injury rehab and, and uh, return to sport. So we quote unquote, clear them when we're actually just scared to load them and, and properly prepare them to even go back to the strength coach who may not even put it, you know, just prepare you to train. And I don't think we do a very good job of that. We, we underdose and underload. Um, and a lot of that has to do with our, the education of physical therapy. If you didn't have like a strength conditioning or training background to begin with, you're not really going to get that PT school. It's not meant for that. They don't promise that. So you have to know, like, why would you know you're paying a lot of money to go to PT school? You just assume that this is just what a sports PT should know. And it's not very much um, if you don't have another background. So if there's any student PTs listening or, or physical therapists or rehab professionals that want to work more with athletes, but you don't have any other training other than your healthcare schooling, I would go and shadow coaches, shadow strength conditioning coaches, pick their brain, like really get a, a sense of, of how that world works. And um, so that's kind of in a nutshell, how I want the field to go. I want there to be more collaboration and, and communication because ultimately who's the most important person. It's the athlete that we're all like, it's the person in between that sometimes we forget about. 
I'd, I'd love to, and I've seen it lately now here in Florida um, that a lot more PT clinics are literally looking like weight rooms. And like you said, having your clinic in a weight room, I think that should be more prevalent. Like doctor's offices should literally look like almost like a cardiac rehab which resistance training, YMCA type of environment. Yeah. Or, or, you know, or understand your limits and refer out, do what's best for the person. Like if you, if you call yourself a sports PT clinic and all you have is a 30 pound kettlebell, I'm sorry. Like if you're seeing post-op and you're seeing these, anybody who's higher performing than a 30 pound kettlebell, you're, there's no way that you're, you're imparting enough uh, load and, and, and um, you're preparing them for what they need to get back to. So like punt them, you say, you know what? I know a PT clinic that's inside of a gym or they've got squat racks and like, they've got what you need. Um, hey, that hey, doesn't hey, happen. Hey. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, so I, and I know that's, that's a whole different, like there's a lot of barriers to that because there's like money and stuff and you know, all that stuff. But, but just, just as a, it's just, you know, try to do better. That's all. Just recognize it. Yeah. Do better, recognize, communicate. That's the moral of the story, I guess. Quinn, where are we able to find you or where can listeners are? How many did you say we had, Adam? Three, four? No, we have four. He's got six. Oh, four. So where can they find you? Uh, where can they buy your book? Yeah, you can buy the book on Amazon. Um just find it there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna forget the title, but you can just move on. <laughs> Amazon, just search Quinn Hennick Amazon, and that's the little book just pops right up. All right. Um, and then on social media, I'm on Instagram, DPT. I'm on Facebook as well. You can just search my name. I'm on Twitter. I think it's, I don't ever post on Twitter. I just follow people and download like research, but it's Quinn Hennick DPT or Dr. Quinn or something like that. My name's unique. So if you just type my name in all these platforms, it'll pop up. But clinical athlete, is on Instagram, clinical athletes on Facebook and the Facebook group, the C the Kalu Facebook group, C A L U. I would recommend all listeners. I don't care who you are, student, coach, trainer, health professional. Um, that's free. It's our, it's the clinical Phenomenal. athletes. Yeah. Phenomenal, man. It's, it's our collaboration with the level up initiative where it's obviously it's a Facebook group. So there's great discussions, but we also do like uh, journal clubs and case studies and, and student meetups and, and all sorts of fun stuff. So um, yeah, there's plenty of uh, plenty of stuff to get people started. I think. Three things you would recommend for anybody out there that want to improve themselves as a coach clinician, three books, three things that you do on a daily basis Ooh. that everyone should do. Um, gosh. Pokemon should be what one. am I? One of my favorite books is, is the book called Mastery. It's uh, by an author named Robert Greene. Um, and it's essentially just the process, like the history of getting good at stuff and the history of mastering your craft and the science behind that. And kind of like what we talked about in the beginning, how it's a process. It really lays out um, in great detail the importance of that. Um, and I think that's a really, really good book. Um, I would say find a um find some type of network or community it could be in person it could be a, it could be one mentor it could be multiple people it could be just colleagues that aren't going to just be like an echo chamber and um aren't just going to validate what your 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 current thoughts they're going to everybody's going to like challenge each other in a healthy way not in a dickish way which can easily be done uh, but just be open to being wrong, be open to being questioned, be open to changing your mind. It's a painful process to kind of realize like, oh, 
it's not even in the moment, but it's like, holy crap, I've been doing this thing. Like other people have been involved in me doing things this way that I now see as maybe not as correct as I thought it was. And that's a very painful thing. And a lot of people, what they call is called the backfire effect where they just dig their heels in deeper and say, you know what? No, I was right. And they find why they were right. It's that's confirmation bias, but be open to being wrong, be open to changing your mind, find a community that's not going to just tell you how awesome you are all the time. Maybe just like sometimes when you do awesome stuff, um, read the book mastery by Robert Greene's a really good one. And a book called crucial conversations is also another really good one. And it's essentially, um, a framework on how to communicate and have hard conversations that all of us are inevitably, inevitably going to have, um, whether it's with our clients or our colleagues or our bosses or whatever. And um, it, it, it teaches you like techniques, like actual communication techniques and listening techniques. It's called Crucial Conversations. It's a really, really good book. And um, I think be okay with just, you know, not knowing everything all at once. Um, and just always like audit your processes. And again, if you have a network that'll help you out, say, hey, this is how I program. What are your thoughts about this? Like, this is my model. I don't care what it is. I don't really care what system you ascribe to, but have get thoughts on it and, and try to tinker with it and update when you can. Got it. Man. That's what I'll say. Dr. Quinn Hennig, that's blowing all the smoke, man. I appreciate your time. Um, I know it was a little lengthy one, but definitely a quality one for sure. So we appreciate you and hopefully, man, we can maybe have a part two and get a little bit more specific with a research topic, man. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, if people want to hear me blabber on for this long again, you know, it's, that's their problem. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> you might lose some listeners and then we'll cut you off. Two. Yeah, yeah. You'd be down. You'd be down to just you two. It'd just be us. Yeah, he just blew our cover. He, our, we, we're the two of the four. <laughs> All righty, Dr. We appreciate it. You have a wonderful night. All our listeners, see you later. Yes, sir.